Did I already pray? Okay, let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for your son. We're grateful for the life we have in him. We'd ask we'd honor it all in your son's name. Amen. Okay, as you can tell from the sermon notes, we're in Luke 10. This is something, last week I preached on something. But it was at one of those events where you go down to the library, and in my Sunday mornings it's, it's around 7.10 by the time I'm shuffling out of my bedroom, headed downstairs, hopefully the missus has made some coffee. I get a cup of coffee, head to the library, quiet in the house because none of the ungodly are up. And I sit in my chair in my library with my coffee and start to look at the text. I have my notebook that tells me what I've preached on in what year and what date so I don't repeat myself too much. But last week I just opened my Bible and the first thing my eyes lit upon was what we ended up on. Happened again this week. Open my Bible. I, I was thinking a little bit of the gospel, so I think my thumb went kind of to there. And it just opened to Luke 10. And so I said, I'm going to read that and read it, read it, and said, Well, let's go. Have I preached on it recently? No, not in five years. So here we are. I don't mean that that's always going to be the case. Sometimes it takes half an hour to find a passage that I've got something to, something to say about. But what I was thinking about, I was talking a little to Jake and Victoria downstairs about the styles of writing that people have. I was, and this is going to sound, and I apologize from the outset, uh, a little, um, you're saying, where does Evan get the time to do this? Or a bit like, uh, the phrase is name dropping. You might not even know the name, but uh, Dame Julian of Norwich, famous mystic of the Middle, Middle Ages in England. And um, I was reading a little piece of hers this week. And my eye grew wild. And one of those people who says strings largely nonsense together and packages it as devotion. I'm sure she says some wonderful and good and true things, but it's a little, you know, dreamy, shall we say? Or I read, was reading a little bit of The Cloud of Unknowing. Some of you may have read a bit of that bit of nonsense. Same sort of thing. Then I found myself, and I don't agree with this man in many things, uh, Chesterton. And suddenly, like a gust of fresh air, Chesterton, and again, the man is a damned, you know, papist, but he was saying this great thing about the nature of the Lord's command to love your neighbor. Clear. Concrete. You'd walk away with the benefit in your hand. You could ask him, you could take that in plastic or paper. Doesn't matter, you'll take it home because you know what it is. And have you ever felt that way? Now, you could, you could like Dame Julian of Norwich, or the Cloud of Unknowing, and you could like Chesterton. It's not a matter of whether you like or dislike them, or you agree or disagree with them. But there are types of writers that, that you're, you're feeling a little, uh, they're a little vague, a little obtuse, a little, a little fo uh, foggy. And you probably felt that about St. Paul and the Lord. 
You ever find yourself just gravitating to anything between Romans and Philemon? Because that, dear heavens, makes sense. I mean, you, you get into Romans, sure, we disagree about Romans, some of you are wrong. But there's an argument that goes on, as long as you pose the right premises that Paul is promoting, you're going to understand what he has to say. It's clear. I love C.S. Lewis. Why do I love C.S. Lewis? Because he's clear. I like Chesterton. Why do I like him? Because he's clear. Sometimes these mystics do actually have it going on, though. Jesus Christ, in his teaching, we're Christians. I don't know if you're aware of that. We're Christians. We follow Jesus Christ. And um, sometimes we're faced with things he says that we'd almost rather have a proof texted or a analyzed Christianity handed out to us in the catechism rather than having to face up to Jesus in this moment. So I was looking with that in mind. That was my preparatory mindset. I'd been reading these snippets of these notable writers and kind of feeling that, you know, desire to skip over. And this is even true of people I agree with, with George MacDonald. Some, you just go, oh man, George, lighten up, Francis, my goodness. Um, just a degree of, 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 of vagary. Luke 10.1, after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them, sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to come. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and salute no one on the road. Already we're like hip deep in some mire here. We're, we're, we're okay, Jesus, it's... You've heard the phrase. It was used at the woman at the well in Luke 4, uh, John 4 when, when um, Christ also, after the woman goes off to get the people from Samaria and come back, and he's saying to the disciples, look unto the harvest, for the uh, harvest is ripe, white unto the harvest. Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest send out laborers into his harvest. Same idea directly stated. I've heard it my whole life from my father waiting for people to see that there's a harvest out there to be seen, to be reaped. But here in this passage you also get this one. And I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. It suddenly has a, a, a much different because we, Americans, affluent society, we can drive anywhere. We can go hold a revival in Wook, Iowa, if we want to, in the next week. Because we can go anywhere we want, pay money, and go down to the local Kinko's, have signs made, send out a direct mailer. We've got the ability to go after that harvest, and only thing we have to be convinced of is that there is a harvest to be gone after. But we need to be convinced by our Lord that there are wolves we are going out in the midst of, and it shapes how you handle this passage. Shapes how you would, and what you approach the world with. Because you're supposed to see, 
the harvest, and you're supposed to see the wolves. Now, the question I ask is that there are two separate metaphors, right? One's a farming metaphor, and one's a livestock metaphor. But you're the lambs, you're not the wolves. You're in command of the harvest, but you're the farmer reaping the harvest, but you're the sheep in regard to the uh, livestock illustration. When I was reading verse 4, it seemed to suggest to me that part of the practical advice he then gives them helps us understand that both metaphors are being lived out by the same thing, the same instruction. Go your way, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and salute no one on the road. Say, some Trappist monk with no preparation. Now, at another point, this is not an instruction to all Christians that you give up your job, that you cut off the shoes of your, the feet of your shoes, walk around in sandals, um, but no sandals, barefoot, no luggage, no extra pair of underwear, no swimsuit, just your clothes on your back, no shoes on your feet, you're not even going to say hi to people. He's putting his disciples in that situation into a state of threat. Remember, they're going out as lambs in the midst of wolves. He's making them, you know how when Gideon went to war against Midian and how he had all these men gathered together from Israel? God says, mm, man, you got too many. Usually in war, you want a lot. God says, no, you're not going to think it's from me if you... And so he whittles it down to about 300 guys to go against Midian, and they win. God wants to make it clear to the disciples that they go out in the midst of wolves looking for the ripe harvest. What that puts them in the need of is that I don't get to go to Wook, Iowa, stay at the Holiday Inn Express, hold my week of meetings, you know, have Kinko's print out extra tracks so as I need them, and then fly back on Frontier or Southwest, back to Spokane and drive home. I want you to walk there, barefoot, no extra clothes, so that when you come into, because you're only going to get as far as Beauville, when you get into Beauville, what are you going to do? Whatever house you enter, you first say, peace be to this house. This itinerant, this kind of John the Baptist-y sort of guy, and I'm not recommending that you do this. This is just for illustrative purposes. Because Christ changes the standard of the commands later on in the ministry. He sends them out and he says, I used to tell you to do this, now do this. Take some stuff. So it's not some sort of Christian concept that Christian ministers don't have shoes and they don't have any preparation. But he's illustrating the metaphors that we went into this with. The, the, the ripe harvest and the, and the wolves. 
He's made you very, it's sort of like, I'm going to go out into grizzly country. I'm going to slather elk blood all over me and tie myself to a tree just to see what happens. The bear is going to come and get you. He's made them vulnerable to those wolves. But at the same time, it's the place where the harvest is seen as well. Because you walk into the town needing a place to stay in the first house you come to, or whatever house you enter, you bless it. Peace be to this house. And look, and if a son of peace is there, your peace shall remain upon him. But if not, it shall return to you. This is something to know about blessings. Especially if you're blessing people. I, I assume that when you bless food, the food gets blessed. It doesn't ever bounce off the food. And I don't want to hear any nonsense from you glutards or any of you GMO, anti-GMO advocates telling me that, no, you can't bless that stuff. You can. you can bless anything you like. And it won't come back. But you bless people. You salute this person in, in Matthew 10. It says about you salute the house. When he told them, don't salute anyone on the road. This is a salutation. It's the Christian salutation. Peace be to this house. Because if a son of peace is there, if the peace remains, it says in Matthew 10, What do you say? Remain at the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. What you carry into this double metaphor, what this sheep and wolves, laborer and harvest, is this realization that you can set up a situation, your situation can be set up so the, deference, the difference between these worlds is clear. Are these people wolves or are they harvest? When you give the blessing, Verse 10, and whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. In both cases, the kingdom of God had come near. And the kingdom of God had come near in a state of expectation that the people who sought peace the people that were sons of peace would hear the message of peace out of these individuals. And others would say no. And it's a stark response. You take the blessing from the son of peace, you stay in his house, you don't move from house to house, and you move on to the next. These were all prefatory to the Lord coming. He sent them, verse 1, where he himself was about to come. I think they call it advanced teams. Um, 
Those of you know Tim Barley, he was advanced team for Laura Bush for quite a while. Um, they have to have somebody go everywhere they're going to go and make every sure everything is going to be fine. That's what these guys are doing. Finding out who's the harvest and who's the walls. And the Lord has very clear opinions about whether the blessing rests, but the kingdom of God has come near to both of them. I tell you, it shall be more tolerable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Nice Jewish town, first century. Not some wild, pornography-driven, homosexual capital of the world like Sodom had been. Sodom is going to be, you know, I understand you guys. These guys, this small town in Judea, that would not listen to the barefoot messengers of peace, from Jesus the Christ, they're in for it. But it matters. This is the message that makes a distinction. This is the blessing. We sometimes fail to realize, we're trying to talk to people, oh, you've heard me in various private conversations, I don't preach about this much, but if ever. I'm a big, uh, you know, romantic love, you've heard of that, falling in love with somebody and then people marrying like idiots and then finding out I'm an idiot later on. Sometimes, but I married my high school sweetheart and it's been 50 years of wonderful bliss. Okay, all right. We know that sometimes what we think is the motivator. We don't realize that in some way we're dividing between metaphors. We're dividing between, even if you just pick one of the metaphors, ripe harvest, not all the people are ripe. Some of the people are the tares in the field. We know that, that having the right message you're not getting married so you could be in love the rest of your life. You're being married so you could be happy. Get it right. Get the wrong point. You spend all your time trying to stay in love. If you're saying, no, I'm supposed to be happy. I'm supposed to be rejoicing in the Lord. I could work that. I could work that. I can't make myself be in love, but I could work happiness. When we're preaching the gospel, we need to know what we're about. Otherwise, it might be that the, the, the metaphor of the laborer and the harvest or the sheep and the wolves has got to be unavailable to us. We think, we think that a person being guilty enough will make them choose Jesus Christ. Have you ever known somebody who chose Jesus Christ and then unchose him a little later? Kind of like a girl who fell in love with you and who fell out of love with you a little later. We sometimes are moving the wrong message. We're sometimes reaping a harvest of people who because of just as I am being sung three more times and the heart just being, you know, I can remember white knuckling it on the, on the, the pews to keep from being going forward in a Baptist church. And I wasn't really that Baptist, and I wasn't actually an unbeliever. But they could get you, they could get you thinking that if you don't walk that aisle, you know, 
hell will open and you'll drop into it. Because you can work that emotion. People could stand in front of a vicar, that's a pastor in other churches, and swear before God and man that they're going to love each other, blah, 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 and she'll be dressed all in white, and he'll be, he'll be looking at her very fondly, and they're marrying because of love, dear heavens. What a bunch of idiots. It's fine to love your wife. You're not commanded to, but it's fine to, I mean, romantically love your wife. We've got to know what it is, we're, what blessing we're bringing. Because the harvest, the harvest you're bringing, or looking for, is a harvest of the right message. Not how guilty I can make someone feel. They are guilty, objectively, but I don't care if they feel it. The message is, the peace of God and the kingdom of God has come upon you. It has come close to you. What's your response? Are you a son of peace? Do you want peace? There are some very well-adjusted unbelievers who aren't that bad. Oh, sure, they've got sins before God. They will be judged accordingly. I can't make them feel guilty for the life of me. I'm not about making them feel guilty. If they do, fine. I don't. But we're messengers of peace. Do they want it or don't they? Do they want the, the kind of peace that comes from Jesus Christ? Now, they might, a lot of people want peace, but then they look at Christ and don't want that. They'd rather have a Buddhist detachment peace rather than the Christian attachment peace. But Christ says, this is the point of judgment. You don't listen to this blessing. Your town, your house doesn't open you. you. The person does not stand there going, I am a son of peace. I want this guy in my house because I, I want to hear about, more about peace. If I don't, they're going to shake the dust off their bare feet and say, it's going to be worse for you than Sodom, which we think is going to be bad. Woe to you, Teresa. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it shall be more tolerable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. He who hears you, hears me. And he who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. This sounds like a pretty direct equation of what your relationship with God is going to, is going to pan out by how you respond to the blessing the, the apostles bring. They've been sent out, this is the 70, not the, not the 12. The 70 are going out with this message. Looking like they have needs. I mean, this is a hurdle that everybody's getting over. You're looking at the homeless. You're looking at the guy wanted. Now, it wasn't as unusual in those day, that day and age, but still, they had no provision. They had no care. They had no shoes. They walk into town. And they say, peace be to this house. What are you saying? 
that the blessing sticks depends on you. It goes right back to the person who gave it. it whatever, however blessings work, boomerang back, the guy just walks away. I have this Ephesians 2 passage here because I wanted it was a, the thought sprang to mind when we talked about the, the 70 going out and declaring the blessing of peace and having that reaction be the one between wolves and harvest. For he is our peace, verse 14, who has made us both one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby bringing the hostility to an end. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Sounds like he's talking about verse 16. Your access to the Father is whether you believe the message preached by Christ. Handed to the 70, handed to the 12, sent out, peace be to this house. What are you doing about peace? Are you a son of peace? Have we even thought of Christianity in terms of peace? I know some really devout people in many years as a Christian, people who just given to the church, and it's a good, you know, generally a good church, given to the church. They, they donate a lot of money to the church. They're involved in all the programs in the church. So it's not this church, obviously. Okay, there are none. The lives are a wreck. Not because they want to be a wreck. Not because they're hiding in some hypocrisy. Their lives are a wreck. It is not a life of peace. Walking into the front door of these homes is not this respite from the world. It's the place where it seems more worldly inside than it seems outside in the world. Because at least there are laws outside <laughs> keep you in order. Stop signs you have to stop for. The Christian home can be pretty awful sometimes. Because we're thinking it's not about this. He preached peace to those who were near and to those who were far off so that we, through the Spirit, could have access to the Father. That's what the Gospel does. It is putting you right with God, putting you, your, your forgiveness is making peace. Your forgiveness takes care of all the outstanding warrants for your arrest. Your growth in grace, your growth in the message of peace as a Christian is to bring your life, your decisions into order with his, not so that he could be kind of a blessing to you in the nonsense you pursue. So that you could stand as a son of peace to live out his order in the cosmos. Do you hear him? Do you reject him? That's the question. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. We don't know if he's going big whoop, that kind of response. I've seen better than that. Or whether he was commenting on what had happened on their ministry. 
Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. They go off in this ministry of peace, and they come back with a different story of excitement. We were casting out demons, and frankly, they were. They were healing people. They were casting out demons. They come back to Jesus and go, you know, we were casting out demons. You know, if we sent like a summer project, we don't do that sort of thing, but say, somebody says, you know, to be a real church, you have to send like a short-term mission trip to Costa Rica. I think it's Costa Rica. You have to send them to, to help build the church or something like that. So off you go. And in the midst of this short-term mission project where you're laying concrete block, some demon-possessed villagers show up and a couple of you praying over them visibly see the work of God remove the whole yet. And when you come back, you've got something to say at this microphone. And the Lord had it happen with his disciples. And they come back just like the teens from this church would come back all excited because they're casting out demons in the name of the Lord Jesus. And he says, okay, you know, actually, the fact that you are gods, the fact that you have been passed from death to life because you have been noted in heaven, written down, that's a greater joy. Do you know that's a greater joy? Oddly enough, we can get off track with all sorts of good religious things. It's good to cast out demons. If you could, do it. Uh, it. It would be good to raise the dead. It would be good to be passionately in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. Good for you have all these sorts of notions. But know what your Christianity is about. What you were harvested for. What is the state of your being? If you're not at peace, if you have not listened to the Christ, if you have not listened to those whom he sent, his apostles, if you do not have the ordinate valuation of what's important, and you think casting out demons is more important than you being saved, get things off. In that same hour, he rejoiced to the Holy Spirit and said, at the end of this message, he sent the 70 out, they went out, they did what they were told, they come back, all excited about something that really happened, but wasn't the measured appropriately. But then he, after he instructs them, he says, I thank thee, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to babes. Yea, Father, for such was thy gracious will. We're really not, when we step into Jesus Christ's teaching, you do have to juggle your synoptic gospels. You have to look at the different accounts of everything. You've got to look at different translations. But Jesus Christ is the founder of our religion. He is the God we serve. He is the atonement for your sins. You want to be in the midst of his teaching. You want to be listening to him. And he encourages you to think that, look, God's purpose is that it's going to be accessible to you. It's not difficult for the least of you. you know, the re reason it's not difficult for the least of you, it's not based on your ability. It's based on what you want. 
All things have been made have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son. So the relationship of the Son is privately held, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. How you listen, what you pursue, do you say, I am a glutton for peace, I am a son of peace. I am one of the harvests that the 70 would have found and I would have welcomed them into my home. I would not have rejected this message of peace. Because he preached peace. This is what I want. I don't want religion. I don't want the shadow of religion. I don't want activities. I don't want a chance to dress nicely once a week. I want peace. It doesn't matter how you say, well, I'm not really theological. This is not theology. Again, it revealed to babes, not to the wise and understanding. There it is. If you want peace, it starts to make sense because the Lord chooses to reveal himself to you and chooses to reveal the Father to you. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. It's an extra blessing, extra punch to this blessing, but also, tragically, an extra punch to the judgment. Because for two millennia, we, have been, we couldn't have moved without falling over this. There it was. Your whole life, Gideons were on the street corner shoving Bibles into your hand. Every hotel room you were in had a Bible in the store. You had, uh, you know, X number of copies yourself. In a translation, you enjoyed. Blessed are the eyes which see what you see. We're not waiting in some small town in Judea for some itinerant, barefoot Jesus freak to walk in and say, peace be to this house. You've had the whole message laid in your lap for 2,000 years. And the question is, how have you responded to the blessing of peace? Have you shown yourself to be a son of peace? Have you received the blessing? Have you gone after the blessing? Do you realize how important this blessing is? Far more than mystical things you could do or devotional feelings you could feel. But it was important. At the same time, the judgment increases because it's the degree of rejection. He who rejects, he who hears. One of the things that... uh, struck me, I was thinking about certain passages spring to mind. I didn't make a note to this on the, on the notes there, but I was thinking of uh, the resurrection of Christ. John 20, the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And then we sort of think, well, it's kind of like saying hi. Back in the day, back in the old tiny times, 
when old-timey people would say, you know, greetings, fellow traveler, rather than hi, we see peace be with you. We begin to realize that, you know, this from the outset is what he is here to preach. Where are you? It helps you decide which metaphor you're going to belong to. Helps you put together a you know a complication of texts. But most importantly, you get to decide whether or not you hear or whether you reject. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful. Thank you for the peace you have preached. We'd ask that we would all in our homes be sons of peace where we've received your apostles, your 70, those who stand there to be listened to, where our homes are designed to be around that listening. Help us here, in your son's name, amen.